Hi, and welcome to Anatomyth. We're talking mythical places. In particular, those where the inhabitants don't feel any pain. Sounds like paradise, no? We're following a wise man's journey to a fabled island of eternal youth. And we'll talk a bit about another wise man's desire to leave said island and go home. Because we all get a little homesick sometimes. Then we'll explore congenital insensitivity to pain, a rare condition where people don't feel any pain at all. We'll learn how to tell if someone has this condition, without causing grievous bodily harm, of course, how it's diagnosed, and the treatment options available. Anatomyth is a podcast about stories, conjecture, and the human body. Humans have long been using stories as a way to make sense of the world around them. This podcast looks at these stories, the myths, legends, lore, and fairy tales, and tries to find an aspect of medicine that fits in with certain aspects of fiction. I'm Audrey, your host. I'm a medical student who's always been interested in such stories, and I love looking for connections even though they sometimes don't exist. Please remember that any recommendations I might make shouldn't be taken too seriously. I'm not yet a medical professional, and what I say shouldn't be counted as medical advice. Likewise, the proposed link between myth and medicine shouldn't be counted as fact. This is a podcast that's primarily for entertainment purposes, and it's filled with speculation and conjecture. This is episode 8, Painless. Sometimes, my favorite part of myths and legends aren't the stories or the characters themselves, but rather the settings. In fact, even when it comes to fantasy and sci-fi books and movies, I often get a lot more attached to the world-building than the story itself, which maybe isn't a good thing. But anyway, I love the myriad physics-defying lands and realities that we encounter in myths. There are entire cities made of gold, for example, which, when you think about it, would probably get really hot and really blinding in the summer. I mean, it's flashy architecture, but not very practical. There's also a large city with a really advanced civilization which went through a teenage rebellious phase so bad that the gods cursed it to be submerged under the ocean. There are world turtles who carry the entire world on their backs, sometimes with the help of several elephants. The Greeks even had a maze that housed a starving half-bull, half-man hybrid, like some sort of demented theme park attraction. I'd say that's creativity at its finest. And finally, let's not forget the almost universal trope of lands without pain, suffering, sickness, and death. As I mentioned earlier, this month's episode is about individuals who can't feel pain. And yeah, there are dozens of stories of ascetics and holy men who can walk across hot coals, for example, or in the points of swords, all that sort of thing without feeling any pain. But today, I wanted to focus on one of these lands of painlessness and eternal youth. It's from a Japanese folktale, 
and I'd like to apologize in advance. It was very hard to find audio sources, so I may and probably will be mispronouncing a few names. Our story today is about Horizon, an island east of the east, and where there's no birth or death or pain. Rising high above the rocky coasts of this island is Fusan, the mountain of immortality. And they say that sometimes, if you're lucky, you can catch a glimpse of the tree that stands on the highest peaks of the mountain. It has stood there for eternity, and within its branches and leaves, it hides away the mysteries of life. On the island of Horizon grows the herb of immortality, and I can fetch it for you so that you may live and reign forever. The wise men had made that promise. How many years had it been now? It was getting difficult to keep track of time, especially when all you were surrounded by, day and night, was ocean. Just blue waters as far as the eye could see, in all directions, on this impossible quest. And it wasn't like he didn't know it at the time, either. Hardly a season would pass when you didn't hear about some new group of men losing their lives in pursuit of the fabled horizon. But the other requests? And the wise man was using that term loosely, of course, that the tyrannical emperor had made of him were equally unrealistic, if not more so. Training nightingales to sing the songs of the great poets? Jofuku was pretty certain that birds didn't give two hoots about the arbitrary standards that would warrant the title of a great poet. And scenting the peony with the scent of the jessamine? Such an experiment would take, first of all, too much time, second of all, a monastery with two hectares of garden at least, and way too many drawings of punnet squares. Something told Jofuku that the emperor was the type of person who thought that even science would bow down to his wishes. So that was out too. And here he was, many years later, the last one left. Everyone else who'd started on this journey with him were long gone. Some were taken by sickness, some slain by pirates, and the rest drowned by the great storm that had swept across the ocean, taking all the stores of gold and food with it. If he ever made it back to civilization, the wise man would make sure that they'd write sagas about his little journey, or at the very least make a legend or a folktale out of it. He'd heard of sailors going mad on the high seas, seeing land where there was only water, and diving to their deaths. He wondered what would kill him first, the lack of water, or sand that would very quickly and devastatingly turn out to be cold, dark, gripping ocean. And when he looked to the distance and he saw the faint outline of a mountain, he couldn't be sure anymore that he wasn't hallucinating. So this was how everything ended. His little rack drifted eastward, on curiously still and clear waters, and the vision of the mountain growing larger and larger. Now he could see a tree peeking through the mists at its top. Now he was close enough to see the colorful flowers lining the island. And now, a large group of jovial island dwellers was coaxing him out from the sorry mass of wooden beams and onto the shores. 
Jofuku briefly wondered if this was how all apparitions appeared to sailors, as if it wasn't enough for an island to sit there all unassuming, and your mind had to come up with people to welcome you with open arms too. But he shrugged us off, along with many other cares and worries. Tyrannical Chinese Emperor Hu? All that responsibility and obligation stuff, none of that mattered anymore. He felt content, at ease. He mused that this must be what it felt like at the end. The wise man made his way onto the island, sighing in relief as his feet touched dry land. He felt light. There was no other way to describe it. His joints no longer creaked whenever he would move, and for the first time in a while, he could straighten his back. It was like all pain had left, and the ravages of time, well, had stopped ravaging his body. He mentioned this to the islanders. Well, that's great to hear, but what's pain, was it you called it? And also old age and death? We've never heard of these words before. Those things don't exist on this island. That threw the wise man for a loop. Didn't everyone know what pain and death were? But I feel like Jofuku was just nitpicking. He didn't ever stop to consider how fortunate he was that there was no language barrier between him, a man from China, and the inhabitants of a secluded island way off the coast of Japan. The story of Horizon, the island of eternal youth, doesn't end there. I like to think of this story as being split into two parts. The first is all about Jofuku, the wise man of China, and his journey to Horizon. Once he gets to the island, the focus shifts to another wise man, Waizo Biyowe, who is from Japan. I don't always tell entire stories on this podcast. I like to focus on the part that's most important to the episode, just in the interest of time, and not extending the episode too much. But I'd like to briefly touch on the character of Waizo Biyowe, who, after hundreds of years in this idyllic, peaceful, and painless existence, was just done with it. Now, some versions of the story say that he longed for death, but most say that he was just kind of homesick and wanted to go back home to his own land. I like that this one story shows how one can become tired of eternal youth and painlessness and long to go back home to a non-eternal existence, basically. Horizon isn't the only island of eternal youth that we encounter in myths, lore, and legends. There are plenty of lands, and sometimes even times, free of pain and suffering and death. Many cultures have stories explaining why humans have to suffer pain and die, while neither pain nor death visited their ancestors or gods. One example is the Iroquois creation story. Long before the world was created, the sky people lived on a floating island where there was no birth, no death, nor pain, nor sadness. How the sky woman arrived on earth varies. Some versions say that she was thrown down through a hole in the sky, others that she fled down this hole. 
Either way, she ended up on Earth, which, by the way, was a land that was spread on the back of Big Turtle. She gave birth to twins, one of them was kind and good, and the other was hard-hearted, and spent his time creating all that was bad, and sending hardships the human's way. So next time you're having a bad day, you know who to blame. I really hope that at some point, I'll find the time to tell this creation myth in full, as well as other stories that I mentioned in passing. But that's where we'll leave it for today. Before we talk about people who don't sense pain, today's sponsor has the perfect anesthetic formula for the average, pain-feeling, medieval peasant. Whether you're a barber who's about to perform surgery on a client or a housewife caring for your loved ones at home, sometimes you're going to need a little anesthesia so that your neighbors don't complain about all the screaming. Whereas most anesthetics today use harmful chemicals to put you to sleep, Dwale uses only all-natural and plant-based ingredients, including lettuce, henbane, opium, and hemlock. All the herbs are sourced from only the finest monasteries, and there's no sugar added. Just place three spoonfuls of Dwale to every half gallon of wine, and you'll have a frugal, natural anesthetic for all your needs. So pain sucks. I, like many other people, don't particularly enjoy the feeling of pain or being in pain. And so it makes sense that we've always been a little obsessed with this idea that somewhere in this vast universe, or maybe in another universe, I mean, who knows, but somewhere there must be a place where pain doesn't exist whether that's physical pain or emotional pain, there must be a land where, or a time when, no one suffers or hurts in any way. And although lands of pain-free existence haven't yet been discovered, or haven't yet been publicized anyway, there are some people who don't feel any pain. There's a condition called congenital insensitivity to pain. It's extremely rare, and it's characterized by a complete absence of nociception from birth. So nociception, if you've maybe heard the fifth episode and remember it from there, nociception is the perception of pain. It's the perception of noxious stimuli. So congenital insensitivity to pain is just not being able to feel pain. As mentioned, it's a condition that occurs from birth, that's why it's called congenital, and it's also inherited. Most are inherited in an autosomal recessive pattern. What this means is that you would need two copies of the mutated gene, one from each parent. So say that in some random couple, both the mom and dad have one mutated copy of this gene. While neither of the parents would have CIP, if they're unlucky enough to both pass that mutated copy onto one of their kids, that poor child would have congenital insensitivity to pain. However, there has also been a somewhat recent discovery of an autosomal dominant inheritance, which means that you would only have to have one copy of the mutated gene. And like I said, it is very rare 
and fortunately so. And in fact, it was first documented pretty recently in a paper published in 1932. That's not to say that this condition didn't exist earlier than that. It's just that that was the first time that someone had discovered it, let's say, and thought to publish it in a medical journal. And I said that it was fortunate that this is very rare. Because even though not feeling pain seems pretty great at face value, just think about what would happen and how we would act if we had no awareness of pain. We would engage in some dangerous and probably even reckless behavior that wouldn't be great for survival at all. And that's the thing about pain. It's actually really useful. It acts as a warning system. It tells us that something is wrong, something's damaged. Basically, that something isn't the way that it should physiologically be within our bodies. It helps us to minimize injury and takes us away from whatever environment is causing us that pain in order to allow for repair of whatever was injured, whatever was damaged. And it also protects us from repeating those same actions in the future. Like when you get nicked by the knife while you're chopping up vegetables, or you get burned by taking a hot pocket out of the microwave, you would be a lot more careful the next time around. And yeah, you could say that, well, if I got cut and I saw blood flowing out of my skin, well, wouldn't I think that something was wrong? Or say that you sprained your ankle or dislocated your shoulder. And not only would it not look right, but you also would have a limited range of movement. You wouldn't be able to move as well or as quickly with a sprained ankle. And you may be right, that probably would prevent you from repeating the same actions that led to a sprained ankle. But just think about visceral pain. Heart attacks, stomach aches, muscle pains. These don't have any outward presentation if you're not feeling the pain. There's no blood coming from your skin. There's no skin irritation or any bulging, normally, anyway. And so you wouldn't know that something was wrong. And you wouldn't go out, get yourself to a doctor or to a hospital and ask for help. And all of this is actually evidenced by how people who don't perceive pain, they tend to die in childhood due to unnoticed but life-threatening injuries. So you can probably imagine how dangerous of a condition this is to have. But first, let's dive a little deeper and talk about what actually goes wrong here. What's the difference between a body that can perceive pain and one that cannot? Well, congenital insensitivity to pain is a neuropathy. This means there's a problem at the level of the nerves. And going back to episode 5 again. In episode 5, I talk a little bit about sensory pathways and how nerve cells, or neurons, are linked together in a chain that brings information from the receptors all the way up to the brain for it to be interpreted. In the case of pain sensing, it's the nociceptors, these pain receptors, which detect damage to tissues, and it passes that message along. So in congenital insensitivity to pain, there is a problem with this system. I'm just going to refer to congenital insensitivity to pain as CIP from now on, because it's just so much easier to say. Clinically, it can be divided into two different, I guess you could call it, types the first one is a developmental disorder. Here, 
the nociceptors either don't develop at all, or they start to, but then due to a lack of certain signals, signals which are important for them to continue growing and continue developing, the nociceptors undergo early death. In the second group, the nociceptors are developed, and they're in the right places, they're where they should be, but the problem is that they don't respond to the signals of tissue damage. They can't be activated by these signals for some reason. Therefore, they can't pass any message along. Now, inability to perceive pain is pretty bad in itself. But this isn't where the problems end. Those who fall into the first group, where the nociceptors don't develop or they undergo early death, they also have an increased susceptibility to Staphylococcus aureus. Staphylococcus aureus is commonly found in human skin, and in that location, they don't usually, usually being the imperative word here, cause huge problems. However, when Staphylococcus aureus enters into the body, it can cause some pretty life-threatening problems, even in a normal individual. So the reason why people with the first type of CIP are more susceptible to this bacterium is, well, think back to those signals that are required for growth of these nociceptors. One of those signals, or trophic factors as they're called, is appropriately named nerve growth factor. NGF, or nerve growth factor, is important for the normal growth and development of nociceptors. In addition to that, it's also important in mounting an immune response to Staphylococcus aureus, which means that if you lack NGF, not only do you not have proper pain receptor development, but you're also at a higher risk of infection from this bacterium. People under this first group of CIP tend to suffer from skin infections and also osteomyelitis and septic arthritis, which are infections of the bones and joints. For these people, it's bad enough that they're a lot more susceptible to infections from Staphylococcus aureus, but factor in this inability to feel pain. They wouldn't be alerted to the infection, and as a result, they wouldn't seek medical care. It's a true recipe for life-threatening injury and disaster if ever I saw one. Additionally, some patients may have what's called congenital anosmia, which is a lack of a sense of smell from birth. So that's not great either. So now that we know, broadly speaking, what goes wrong, we can ask, would this be obvious? How would it come to your attention that someone doesn't feel pain? I mean, you can't just go around punching people and waiting for them to say, ow. Not only is it pretty socially unacceptable, but it also wouldn't be a reliable test. It's really interesting. Findings show that pain behaviors, like saying ow, are learned in the first decade of life, even by those who don't feel any pain, just because they're mimicking the people around them. However, pain avoidance behaviors are not learned. This means that they wouldn't stay away from any dangerous environments or activities which would result in pain in pretty much almost everyone else. This seems to be a lot more common in adult men with this condition, whereas adult women with congenital insensitivity to pain tend to be more risk-averse and behave a lot more cautiously. Let's talk about some features that can be observed in people who are insensitive to pain. 
you would typically see self-mutilating injuries. It's pretty common to see fingertips that have been bitten off, or even wounds in the mouth or in the tongue. Recurrent ear infections, particularly otitis media, are also frequent. If they're a bit older, you might see body deformities. This is due to the frequent fractures, the frequent joint injuries and dislocations, many of which may not have set properly or healed completely. It's also not uncommon to see corneal injuries and vision problems. Those with CIP sometimes also don't have a corneal reflex, or blink reflex. If something has ever gotten stuck in your eye, a stray eyelash, for example, or dust, or maybe even a Q-tip that you touch to your eye on purpose, you tend to blink, hence the blink reflex. As already mentioned, those who don't feel pain might also not have this reflex. If you've listened to any of the two episodes of this podcast where I talk about the cornea, episodes two and four, if you want to go ahead and check them out, you'll know that the cornea must be kept clean and free of foreign bodies and irritants at all costs. That's partly why the corneal reflex is so important. Without this reflex, these irritants just get to hang out around your cornea, leading to abrasions, scratches, scarring, and just general injury. Some also have abnormalities in temperature regulation. While they may be able to identify large changes in temperature, they're usually not able to sense when something is too hot or too cold. In addition, some even have what's called congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis. When someone has anhydrosis, they are unable to sweat. I've already talked a bit about thermal regulation, again in another episode. Basically, thermal regulation is how our body maintains internal temperature, like a steady internal temperature. And this involves shivering when it's too cold and sweating when it's too hot. This is because sweating is a way for the body to get rid of all of that extra heat. So when someone can't sweat, then this would disrupt thermal regulation, leading to recurrent and unexplained fever. While these features may be indicators, in medicine, we like to be sure or as sure as possible about the diagnosis. Often, we have certain tests and specific diagnostic criteria, but with congenital insensitivity to pain, this presents us a bit of a challenge. There is no consensus on the clinical diagnostic criteria, although there are some tests that we can do. When you suspect that someone can't feel pain, you would want to test for the feeling of pain, for nociception. Now, how would you assess that? Obviously, you want to apply pain. Now, this can be a little tricky. Some authors have actually had experience of children who were incorrectly diagnosed with insensitivity to pain, just because the stimulus that was applied was not painful enough. So you want something that is painful enough but also not something that would cause permanent damage. No scars, for example. What was eventually settled on was to apply to the nail bed about 5 to 10 kilograms of pressure. So this is done with a pen that's pressed to the nail bed, and the nail bed would blanch for a few seconds afterwards. That's the main test that's done. But the thing is, besides this lack of pain, the rest of the nervous system, the sensation of touch, vibration, even motor functions, all of these are typically normal, and it's really just the sense of pain that is completely non-existent. 
Additionally, nerve conduction studies and even electromyograms are typically normal. Congenital insensitivity to pain is an inherited disease, which means that genetic testing could help. So this helps to track carriers, those who have only one mutated gene, and who can then pass it on to their children, and also to assess risk to children and aid in genetic counseling to help parents make decisions. Say that someone is diagnosed with CIP. What comes next? Well, after the diagnosis, the extent of the disease would be evaluated. This would mean checking the involved systems, the skin, the temperature regulation, and also check for developmental delays and the presence of a support system. There's also no real consensus for treatment. Mostly at the moment, it's really just supportive. Treating injuries, setting fractures, regulating the environmental temperature, and just generally making sure that there is a good support system in place for these individuals. Obviously, and I hate how often I'm saying this on this podcast, we have a long, long way to go with CIP. And actually, of all of the topics that I've covered so far, I'd say that this is probably the one with the least answers. Thankfully, a lot of research is going into this, and who knows where we'll be in a few years. One good thing to come out of this is that discovery of the genes that are involved in CIP has actually catalyzed the manufacturing of this entirely new class of analgesics, pain relief medications. So there's at least that. Next month, we're talking about one of my favorite cooking ingredients, which is probably better known for warding off vampires. That's right, we're going to talk about garlic, the protection it provides against vampires and the like, and especially allicin, an active ingredient in garlic with some pretty cool pharmacological activity. If you like the show, please follow it on your preferred podcast app, and please consider rating the show and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It gets the word out about the show, and I really appreciate getting feedback from you guys. Also, tell your friends about it. You can also reach the show on social media, whether it's to suggest a topic, talk about your favorite mythical or legendary setting, or just say hi. Also, let me know if, should you be given the chance, you would stay in a land of eternal youth, happiness, and painlessness. You can find the show on Twitter, at AnatomythPod, and on Instagram and Facebook, at Anatomith. You can also send an email to audrey at anatomith.com. Links to the website and social media are in the show notes. I'm Audrey, your host, and this was Anatomith. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.